All right, announcements. Um, this week, of course, this Saturday, we'll have the memorial service here for my uh, father. That will be at 1030 uh, Saturday morning. That will be followed by a reception and lunch. Not, somebody said, not just finger food? No, not just finger food. Y'all are honoring him, and I appreciate that very much. So bring your appetite back there, Jeff. Is your name Jeff? <laughs> okay, also, um, don't forget Saturday night that it's the end of daylight savings time, so we'll uh, fall back, so we'll turn our clocks back an hour so you can get an extra hour of sleep. Uh, the Sunday uh, in two weeks, or now be a little bit less than that, about 12 days, uh, there'll be a memorial service for Tom Flint uh, here at the church on uh, Sunday, November the 11th at 5 p.m., also a reception following at that point. Then um, just a reminder on Samaritan's Purse in the back, and then we'll have a church-wide uh, fellowship meal after church on Sunday the 9th of December for our annual Christmas uh, Christmas dinner together. Uh, one other announcement I wanted to make clear. I don't know how many of you are voting in, and vote within the city of Houston, but I wanted to make this point because I've been uh, I've been corrected, and I want to correct some people who have already voted or who have not voted yet so you don't make the mistake that others have made. The politicians are getting so crafty in the way they, they uh, write these propositions and things that it's very difficult to go into a voting booth and read amendments and propositions and proposals, things like that, uh, and, and think you understand them. Do not be so arrogant as to think that you can read a ballot and understand those propositions because they are written often to obfuscate and confuse and to trick you into voting the way they want you to vote. Now, the, there's a proposition for Metro, and I think a lot of conservatives have sort of a knee-jerk reaction that we just want to vote no to everything because we're tired of everybody spending money and wanting more money, and we're tired of everybody spending, uh, spending money they don't have and not living within their budget. But a good friend of mine who owns a business down on Post Oak, down by the Galleria, and those merchants all along there have been fighting Metro for the last several years to prevent them from putting a uh, uh, rail line down the middle of Post Oak because it will absolutely destroy their businesses, uh, said that you vote yes for Metro. Don't vote no for Metro. Now, every conservative I've talked to has voted no for Metro, which is to vote yes for what you don't, for what you don't want. Vote, no for, vote yes for Metro because if you vote, well, apparently what that really does is it restricts them to their current charter and their current budget. And if you vote no, it allows them to do something else. And we don't want them to do something else. So be careful. Read up. Check me out. I read one conservative voter guide that said vote yes for Metro. And I have noticed since I learned this day before yesterday that uh, in a number of yard signs where I've gone by and people have sprouted five or six yard signs, there's Ted Cruz and there's Romney and there's vote yes for Metro. So it seems to me that the information that I'm getting is that conservatives vote yes for Metro because that restrains and constricts them to their charter 
and their current uh, definition of money. So my, my caution really is, don't take my word for it, read everything before you go vote. Download a ballot. Look at the voter guides that are available for Harris County voter guides, not the League of Women Voters, but, you know, conservative Republican voter guides, and understand that wording so you don't get duped into voting yes when you should be voting no or no when you should be voting uh, voting yes. So that's my little <coughs> admonition for the evening. So before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship and then uh, we'll be ready and prepared to study the word this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we can be here today. Your word refreshes us. It's a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. It illuminates our thinking so that we can see the truth. And it's only in your light that we can see light. And Father, we're so thankful for all that you have revealed to us and the challenges for us to understand it and implement it in our own lives, that as we learn to think as you would have us to think, thinking in a way that is consistent with the universe as you've created it, We know that only then can we think correctly and make then wise decisions. Father, as we study this evening, we see that your hand is in history. You're intimately involved in history. You're intimately involved in the the growth of Christianity, the establishment and growth of the church from the first century through the present. And though uh, history at times looks chaotic, looks out of control, looks as if the church is on its way out, and that it is internally weak. And though that may be, nevertheless, we know you are in control and that, therefore, it is not as bad as it might seem. That we are to trust you and not get our eyes upon the vagaries and the exigencies of life, but to focus upon who you are and what you provided, what you've directed. And we see such a great example of that in what we study this evening. We pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and while you're turning there, I'm going to address a question that's come up uh, sort of off the top of my head, but this question comes up every now and then, and every two or three years it seems that there is somebody who comes along and says that they have had a glimpse of heaven. They've had some out-of-body experience where they have gone to heaven, and then they write a book about it. And they convince many people by things that they say that, oh, yes, this again is a wonderful confirmation of what we believe in Scripture. However, this is uh, <clears throat> this new testimony is from a neurosurgeon by the name of Evan Alexander, Alexander I meant to look at this today, and it just got away from me, but apparently he and some others who've had this kind of experience were on uh, the Katie Couric show this afternoon sharing their ignorance. And I say this partially out of um, just absolute frustration with Christians who should know better and part of it out of concern for those who don't really know better. Because this is just contrary to the foundations of Christian truth. So let's just think about it just basically. You have somebody who claims that they were unconscious and in this state of unconsciousness, 
they went to heaven. And they come back and they say, well, this is what I saw in heaven. And they give you a list of 15, 20, 30 characteristics of what's in heaven. Well, you look at those as a Christian, knowledgeable of Scripture, and you say, well, these 15 or 20 clearly clearly are consistent with Scripture. But that means there's another 5, 10, 15, 20 things that they are saying about heaven that are not in the Scripture. So how do you know if it's true? It's not in the Scripture. So are you then looking to the experience of this person who is maybe in the case of one situation like this a few years ago, a young child whose credibility is really established because his father is a pastor, of course, if his father's a pastor, then he must be right. His father has endorsed what he has, uh, what he has said and what he has witnessed. And, and uh, he didn't say much about it for some years. And then when he started talking about it, uh, his father just uh, concluded that he must be, <clears throat> must, be, must be right. But what we're doing ultimately is we're looking to either something other than Scripture to confirm our beliefs or to give us information about that which we cannot see, taste, touch, or feel, that which is not available to us through empiricism or rationalism. And so we are putting our faith in not only the person who has claimed to have this this experience, but we are putting our faith in that person that while unconscious, they accurately interpreted the significance of what their brain conjured. Now we all have many different things going on inside of our inside of our minds. We have all kinds of dreams that come up, generated by by everything from from <clears throat> the adversity and stress that we face in life, things that we're worried about, things that we are anxious about. Or maybe like when I was in college, you just had a double jalapeno pizza before you went to bed and you're having some unusual dreams as a result of that. How do we know what is generated in between your ears in that state of unconsciousness is true? Well, the Bible says that the Word of God is true and we judge and evaluate everything on the basis of the Word of God. It also claims that the revelation of God ceased, which means this kind of thing is not going on anymore, there's no new revelation, and that the revelation of God is sufficient. That means we don't need to look. Why do we feel like we need to look to the, the imaginings of a seven-year-old, six-year-old boy or this doctor or someone like that in order to uh, validate what they in order that what they said somehow confirms our faith. Why doesn't the Bible just confirm your faith? The Bible and the Bible alone ought to confirm your faith. Uh, in, in Luke 16, Jesus tells the story about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is too busy with his life to care about this homeless man that lives outside of his, his gate and begs, and he's sick, he's ill, and he dies, and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man then dies, and he is buried, and he goes to torments. And he can see the see Abraham, uh, or see Lazarus, the the homeless man, across the way, this great gulf. And he cries to Father Abraham, who is in charge of paradise, to have mercy upon him, that is, on the rich man, because he's in torments, to send Lazarus to dip his tip of his finger in the water to cool his tongue 
because, verse 24, he says, I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, there's a great gulf fixed between us so that you neither can pass from one side to the other. So the rich man then says, Well, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. What he's asking is, give my brothers an experiential confirmation of the truth of resurrection. Let Lazarus be resurrected so that he, and this is not the Lazarus of John 11. Let Lazarus be resurrected so that he can go to my brothers and they will know on the basis of his testimony that heaven really does exist and so does hell, so does uh, punishment. And Abraham says, pay attention to this. They have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't listen to Lazarus. Now, that's a powerful statement. It means the word of God is more true and more accurate than whatever any, anybody says, whatever anybody claims, whatever experience they have. And if you're going to an experience to validate or confirm your faith in any way, shape, or form, then it's, you have a pretty weak, rotten, non-biblical faith. Because you're not trusting in the word, you're trusting in some human being's experience and you don't have a clue what it's all about. Not only that, when we look at Old Testament passages about those who claim to have a revelation, that if it's not 100% accurate, then that person should be uh, penalized by death because they have lied about receiving something from God. And but none of these people confirm uh, or give 100% accurate information. For example, in a quote in the breakout in this article about in Newsweek about this uh, neurosurgeon, he says, the universe as I experienced it in my coma is the same one that both Einstein and Jesus were speaking of in their very different ways. Hello. I mean, Einstein did not talk about the same universe that Jesus talked about. So to claim that that he's having some revelation of truth is totally absurd. It's not biblical. As a Christian, we cannot give it any countenance whatsoever. And furthermore, in, in 2 Corinthians, when pa- Paul tells the story of the time when he has a vision of heaven in chapter 12, and he says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, this would have been Many people think it's associated with the time he is stoned almost to death in Damascus, an event we've recently studied in Acts. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. I know such a man, and he's actually talking about himself. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. See, inexpressible, that means you can't come back and write a bestseller about it. Inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. God prohibited him from coming back and writing what he experienced. So you think God's going to let some five-year-old kid do it? Or some neurosurgeon who doesn't believe in the gospel do it? Come on, this is just insane. But this is the kind of people, that's the kind of thing that people, this kind of straws people grasp after when they don't have any faith and they really don't believe the Bible. Because if you believed the Bible, you wouldn't pay an ounce of attention to it. And if, you, and, and if you don't believe the Bible, you have to have this kind of confirmation. 
And that's what your faith is really based on. So you're building your faith on a straw. So those are the basic reasons why you should never pay attention to this stuff. It's just part of the it's just part of the chatter that's out there that Satan uses to distract us from the truth. And we just need to just ignore it. It's just nothing more than background static. Okay, Acts chapter 13. Let's talk a little bit about where we are in Acts. The expansion of the church. Acts 1.8, Jesus told the disciples that they were to be witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Once you shift from Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth, you've moved from a Jewish world to a Gentile world. And we're in that transition in Acts 10, 11, and 12. In Acts, um, Acts chapter 1 through 6, that was the first major division we looked at in Acts, we saw that God through the Holy Spirit authenticated and empowered the disciples and their witness in Jerusalem. That was the first part, in Jerusalem. We saw the birth of this new spiritual entity, the church, in chapters 1 and 2. And then the expansion of that church by God the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 3. Then the second major division of, of this book began in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and extends down through uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 24, which is the ne- very next chapter. So we're coming to the end of this second major division in the book of Acts, which is the expansion of the witness of the church into Judea, and Samaria. It began with the uh, arrest of Stephen and his testimony before the Sanhedrin, which ended with his uh, biting sermon condemning the Sanhedrin for their rejection of God, that they are con- continuing this tradition of negative volition and hostility to the truth that has been exhibited by Jewish leadership throughout the Old Testament. This was. This is not a condemnation of all the Jews. It's not a reason for anti-Semitism. For there were many, many believers, and there were great prophets that uh, were raised up. But there were a vast number, too many, in too many of the generations that rejected the revelation of God. So they were condemned, their conscience was pricked, and they took Stephen out and they stoned him. And there we were first introduced to Saul of Tarsus, Aligned with the Pharisees, uh, he was a zealot for Pharisaism, and he did everything he could to stamp out this new movement of the Nazarene known as, as the Way. We saw this expansion of the church during that time because as the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, the Christians, the believers there, they're not called Christians yet. They will. We'll see that tonight. But those believers left Jerusalem, and they went to Samaria, which is the area between Judea and and uh, Galilee in the north. They went to Galilee. They went to other areas of Judea seeking safety, someplace where they could go and reestablish themselves and not come under persecution. At the same time, we saw how God the Holy Spirit worked through Philip in, in taking the gospel to the Samaritans and also to the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw how in this expansion, Peter and John, as representatives of the apostles, were were very much uh, present, giving their validation and authentication to this expansion of the church. In chapter 9, we saw God's salvation for Saul of Tarsus and how this is preparing the way 
for the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. In the last part of chapter 9 through 10 and 11, we see the expansion of the church in, um, in Judea. And then as Peter is given a vision to take the gospel to Cornelius, which we studied last time in chapter 10 down through uh, uh, Acts 11, verse 17. And now there is a shift that takes place in verse, or down through about verse 18, there's a shift that takes place in verse 19. Uh, we read in verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution, when was that persecution? It was the one that arose over Stephen. Now that occurred in, in uh, Acts chapter uh, 8, verse 4. We read about that persecution that broke out against uh, against the believers in Jerusalem. So those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. So all of the events up through Acts 11, verse verse 4, uh, excuse me, Acts 11, verse 18, have taken us down this timeline to uh, approximately 44 A.D., and in verse 19, we're going to backtrack uh, several years, back about six or seven years, to first talk about this persecution that broke out back around 37 or so, 36 or 37. And then it's going to, we're going to be brought up to date with the uh, Apostle Paul and then uh, see how God is going to bring him out of obscurity from Tarsus to this church in Antioch. So this is a trans, another one of those transition sections that we have run into several times where the Holy Spirit sort of stops the forward momentum, goes back, brings us up to date from another line in the story, and also gives us a progress report on how the church is doing. If you look at verse 21, we see our progress report. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So we see this continued expansion. Now, we're still talking about Jewish believers, Jewish background believers. We're not talking about Gentiles in this section. We talked about Gentiles in 10 and 11, but now that action paused, and we're going back and picking up another another line of action, a line of action that relates to the church in Antioch and the leadership of Barnabas and pulling Saul out of obscurity to bring him up up to date. So whereas the events of Peter and Cornelius uh, took place in uh, AD 44, these events probably take place in 43, and by the time we get to uh, verse 27, then we're up to 44, and the events in the last part of chapter 11 are uh, roughly the same time as uh, as the events in, in chapter 10 and chapter 11. So God is going to expand the church, and that's what we must pay attention to. We live in an age today, an age of advertising, an age of consumer manipulation, an age of building businesses through uh, all manner of uh, telephone uh, marketing, telemarketing approaches, various manners of, um, of advertising, 
uh, and all kinds of things to try to get people to do certain things. And people can be easily manipulated by good marketing techniques. And there is a certain amount of confusion among, I think, among a lot of leaders in Christianity who don't really see a distinction between uh, marketing techniques and evangelism. They blend those two ideas together, and I've seen this for the last 40 years. Back in the 70s, when I first went to uh, Dallas Seminary, which was in 1976, uh, there were already the seeds laid for what we witness today in terms of of the uh, uh, mega churches, and it was called at that time the church growth movement. It was already being called that. Two of the leaders of the church growth movement came out of Fuller Theological Seminary in California. Fuller Seminary was named for Charles Fuller, who was a sound Orthodox evangelist who was asked to lend his name uh, and uh, presidents and his person to the presidency of Fuller Seminary that was started in the 50s, and they gathered together a uh, an array of celebrity evangelical uh, theologians, but there was something missing in the mix. And it didn't take long before cracks appeared in their doctrine, and they began to waffle on the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. The doctrine of biblical inspiration is that God is the ultimate author of Scripture. He works through the writers of Scripture so that without uh, without destroying their own personality, without destroying their own uh, writing styles, their own backgrounds, their own vocabulary, God would supervise, oversee, superintend their writing so that what they wrote was without error, and God oversaw that process. That's called inspiration. Inerrancy is the doctrine that what they wrote in the original writings, not in the copies, not in the translations like the King James Version and others, and there is a view called King James only, and they believe that the translators of the King James Bible were as inspired as the, other, as the writers of Scripture but that only the original writings of the apostles of the of the books of the new testament were without error error crept into copies but through the supervision of god in what is known as the providential care of god over the scriptures that that we have access to enough cop, enough copies of the um, of the originals to be able to ascertain with 99.9% accuracy what the original was. That 0.01% that we're concerned about doesn't affect doctrine. It usually involves uh, word order or spelling or a phrase is left out here or inserted uh, somewhere else, but it doesn't affect anything doctrinal or theological. Well, Fuller Seminary fudged on inerrancy. So they began to say that, that the Word of God is inspired and inerrant in all matters of faith and practice. Be careful with that. It's not what they say that's wrong, it's what they don't say. Is the Bible only inerrant in matters of faith and practice? What about history? What about geography? What about observations related to the universe? Is it without error there as well? Sure it is. But they said that it is without error in matters of faith and practice. So they are saying when it's talking about history, geography, 
the creation of life, well, it might not be inerrant there. So that began a crack in their dike, and it wasn't long before Fuller went downhill. Well, they had a man named Donald McGavern who came into their world missions department, and his background was on the mission field, and he had used a lot of these uh, various uh, salesmanship techniques, I'll say, just to sort of summarize the whole approach, marketing approach, and it had some success. But he's not committed totally to the sufficiency of the word, the sufficiency of grace, the sufficiency of revelation. And so uh, he's bringing, his idea was that if it works, it must be okay with the Holy Spirit. And he had a young protege by the name of uh, Peter Wagner. And Peter Wagner became known later as the, he's the real father of the church growth movement. And he also influenced a man by the name of John Wimber. John Wimber uh, was a originally Quaker background, somewhat dispensational, but he got he was involved with the Calvary Chapel movement in Southern California. He wasn't really charismatic, but that was a somewhat charismatic movement, although on the conservative end of the spectrum. And then uh, uh, he got introduced to a really extreme form of the charismatic movement when he let a rather weird individual by the name of Lonnie Frisbee come into his congregation around 1976 and call down the Holy Spirit upon the congregation. And Frisbee got in the pulpit and he calls, I call down the Holy Spirit on everybody. And everybody just passed out on the floor and thought, oh, this is a great work of God. Lonnie Frisbee was one of three individuals who were hippies, uh, uh, (coughs) turned on, tuned out, dropped out, living in Haight-Asbury around 1966, 1967. And somebody gave him the gospel, gave him a tract, and he got saved and his two roommates got saved. I spoke to one of them who later on was an elder at Ray Stedman's uh, Peninsula Bible Church, and was, he was fairly solid. But um, Lonnie Frisbee was responsible for taking this. They, they, developed, they witnessed to a lot of people and had a little Christian commune. Then he took them all down to... Costa Mesa to Calvary Chapel, and that started what became known as the Jesus Movement, which was had some good and bad things related to it. It was the source of contemporary Christian music, the growth of Calvary Chapel Movement, which later became much more conservative. I got a lot of this information from the pastor of the Calvary Chapel, who was Chuck Smith, who has had many problems in his association called uh, the Calvary Chapel Association because this experiential charismatic element was there, led many of them, including his own son and a nephew, to go way off the charts in many extreme views uh, in, the, in the church growth movement. And to the degree that Chuck Smith had to excommunicate for heresy his own son and nephew. And I give him great credit for having the spiritual integrity to preserve doctrine uh, even though it it had such devastating personal consequences uh, for himself. His brother uh, has written a book on, uh, Chuck Smith's brother has written a book on this called The New, the New, Christian, New Spirituality, I believe, and it's quite interesting and informative, especially for someone like, like myself who studied through this whole era and knew all these people 
I was working on a doctoral dissertation at one time, doing a lot of research on the vineyard movement. I interviewed, I spent two hours in a, doing a recorded interview with Peter Wagner in his office. I spent three hours with uh, George Meisinger, managed to set me up with an interview with, with Chuck Smith in his office, and George went with me, and we sat in that office in 19, uh, I think it was uh, winter of 1988. And, in fact, I ran into you at the airport on the way out there, Katie, uh, do you remember that? Y'all were going out for a conference, and I got off an airplane. Y'all got off an airplane on the other side, and we just coincidentally met right there in the middle of the airport by the coincidence of God, just pure luck, right? And uh, that was an interesting time to go out there, but, but I got interviews with all these people. So it was real, it's interesting to watch that. But this whole motivation of the church growth movement is that, that the church isn't doing well and the church isn't growing and it's it's our fault because we're not trusting the Holy Spirit enough, and it's a it's a charismatic concept. It's not a biblical concept, and it is built on. There's a lot of false doctrine, and there's a lot of of um, heresy that went with it. it. Was the idea that Wimber had the idea that it's unless proven otherwise, whatever happens is from the Holy Spirit, and so there was never testing any doctrine. One of his proteges. Uh, a guy by the name of uh, 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 Mike Riddle, I think that was his name, uh, later ended up in Kansas City, known as one of the Kansas City prophets. And later Tommy Ice and I interviewed him and some of his, well, not him, but some of his associates up there. And they had all this same kind of idea, and they've been very influential in some of the things that are going on today. He and some of those old vineyard people and Peter Wagner are still very influential, and we had this prayer uh, prayer thing uh, a little over a year ago at the uh, at Reliance Stadium. Some of you remember um, the governor uh, was behind that, and a lot of and they're post a lot of these people now post millennial. We're going to try to bring in the kingdom, and they just have all these really crazy ideas, but they they all talk about loving Jesus. My question is, what Jesus are you loving? And um, so it's 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 but but this book by Paul Smith, Chuck's brother, really does expose how much demonic thinking, how much heresy is involved in this whole whole movement, and how it's infiltrated the, the what's known as the church growth movement. And we drive around Houston today, and you see these enormous churches. My question is, where did they get the money to do that? I mean, they pop up, they buy the land, they have. 3,000 people there in, in under three years. How do they do that? Where do they get the money? And one of the things that Paul Smith points out is that some of the movers and shakers who initially financially backed people like Rick Warren and the purpose-driven church and that whole purpose-driven heresy uh, were, were people who were not even Christians, like Peter Drucker, who was a well-known business guru back in the 70s and 80s, who was Jewish, Buddhist, Gnostic, New Age, whatever, and and he felt like only the kind of uh, only a kind of ecumenical Christianity would restore harmony to the U.S. And so he he poured uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars into backing Rick Warren to make him a success. Rick Warren himself was a Originally, he got his master's from Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, and then he went out to Southern California, and he got another degree from Fuller Seminary. There's that Fuller connection. He studied under uh, Peter Wagner and John Wimber, 
And he went out in another format and started the purpose-driven movement. So all of this is, is, this is what's out there today. You go through your Christian radio stations and everything, and you see this. And the pressure that comes on a lot of pastors is enormous because they sit here with a, as a pastor in a church with a small group of people that's getting smaller, and people are saying, well, why don't we do what they do down the street? Because they get people to come and listen. Yeah, but the people don't want to come and listen to doctrine. They don't want to come and listen to real Bible study. They want somebody who's just going to be a great motivational speaker and make them feel good about themselves and uh, and feel good about churchianity, not Christianity. And so there's a tremendous amount of compromise there. And the reason I say that is because when we get into these, these um, progress report sections of Acts, the emphasis is on what God is doing and not what God is doing because of what the people did. You know, this was uh, uh, is also part of um, a lot of popular sort of uh, cultural Christianity stuff, not biblical Christianity, the idea that, that God will only do things if I sort of motivate him to do it. I have to name it and claim it. I have to use the right uh, formula to claim. That's another aberration that came out of the charismatic movement in the 60s that has gained great purchase in our culture because people don't want to study the Bible. They just want a quick fix solution that if I just do it the right way, we'll have a big church. We don't have a big church, then we must be doing something wrong. See, that's this American work applied to the church, that if you do it right, God's going to bless you. You're going to have a big church. If you don't have a big church, because you're doing something wrong, and God's not blessing you. And I say that because that can affect all of us, and we don't have a big booming church that's just exploding because we're teaching the truth, and that runs counter to a lot of this. And so there's always that temptation that comes to all of us is maybe we're missing out on something. But the more you pursue the truth, the more you teach the truth in a society of negative volition, you're going to be more like Elijah and Elisha then you're going to be like the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. You're going to be chased out of town for teaching the truth. They're not going to all come around you and, and uh, respond positively to your message. And we have to, if we're going to be biblical, we have to have a theology that is biblically correct and large enough to, to take into account Failure within the plan of God or what appears to be failure or non-success in the world sense within the plan of God and great success within the plan of God. We have to have a theology that says if you spend all of your time, you dedicate yourself to the Lord, you train and you go to seminary, that God's going to bless you, which doesn't mean that when you get off the sailing vessel to ride the, the rowboat into the beach, that the people you're going to go, go witness to don't kill you. What a waste of effort, human viewpoint says. What a waste of money and education and training. Why didn't God bless those men? Well, the men I'm talking about are men that first took the gospel to Korea in the late 19th century. And when they were killed and their rowboat washed ashore and their chest filled with tracks that had the gospel and had the New Testament and Korean in it, that that broke open on the beach and the... Uh, the, 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 these primitive warrior villagers that had killed him found this, responded to the gospel by the Holy Spirit, 
And when others came uh, years later, they found an established church based on the response of those individuals to what they read in the Bible. It's not about human methodology. It's about the truth and the response to the truth. And we're committed to that, and this church is committed to that. It's not about technique. It's not about methodology or personality. It's about letting God use his word to transform people and giving people the freedom to use their volition to either accept or reject it. And this is what we see here is that there's this persecution that arose over Stephen. See, modern superficial views of suffering would say, well, they must have been doing something wrong if everybody was turning against them. But because they were doing what was right, they were rejected by the culture uh, because the culture was committed to something else. And so this persecution arose. And we read here that uh, <clears throat> they... they um, they scattered, the believers scattered. The Greek uh, word there for uh, is di- diaspora, which is the verb where we get our noun diaspora, diaspora, which is the scattering of the Jewish people, same word. So these were Jewish believers who were scattered after the persecution, and they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Emphasis there on the Jewish nature, remember, this is this takes us back. He, uh, Luke sort of doubles back on his timeline here, and this is before the events recorded in Acts 10 and Acts 11. You see on this map here uh, the area of Cyprus, the island over here that's about uh, 100 miles or so to the west of Phoenicia, that Phoenicia is this uh, area. It's not very wide, five to ten miles wide, and at, historically at its greatest, it was only uh, it was less than 200 miles from north to south. Uh, much of the time it was much less. It was a collection of, of city-states such as uh, Tyre, Sidon, Seleucia along the coast. In the, in the ancient world, it was one of the uh, strong seafaring uh, Nations that dominated the trade on the on the open ocean. So we see here in this map the location of Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch up here in the north. Here's another map to give you a little greater perspective. This is the southern coast of what is now modern Turkey. These are some of the different Roman provinces. Over here in purple, you have Cilicia. Uh, Tarsus is located in Cilicia. That will be mentioned later. This is where uh, the Apostle Paul said that he spent time during his silent years in Cilicia and Syria. So he was involved in ministry in this area. We just don't know uh, what he did during that time. Down here we have Antioch of Syria. Down here we have the strip of land known as Phoenicia. And out here... Um, out here, Cyprus. Let me tell you just a little bit about these these areas. First of all, Phoenicia. Phoenicia is roughly equivalent to our modern Lebanon and was originally settled by the Greek sea peoples as a part of a large migration which settled also in Carthage over on the western part of the of the Mediterranean in the north in the uh, North Africa area, west of Libya, Tunisia, that that area. And as well as in Philistia here, and then others went out from Philistia and, and we'll see settled in, uh, in Cyprus. During the time of David, about a thousand years earlier, 
under King Hiram of Tyre, they dominated sea trade. The uh, uh, Phoenicians dominated the sea trade, and Israel under David and Solomon dominated the land trade routes. Between the two of them and their alliance at that time, they, they were like an empire that dominated all trade uh, in the world. In the Old Testament, they were also, though, during Old Testament times, the center of Baal worship and the worship of, of, uh, of the fertility gods and fertility religions and all of the evil that went along with that. And so uh, Phoenicia was strongly condemned by Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Tyre, uh, Isaiah predicted the destru- complete destruction of Tyre, which took place in 332 B.C., when Alexander the Great led his armies down along the uh, coast of the Mediterranean here and completely destroyed uh, Tyre. By New Testament times, the Phoenician area and the cities like Tyre and Sidon were completely under Roman authority uh, as part of the province of Syria, and the people, the Gentiles who lived there were completely uh, Hellenized. So when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, many of the Jewish Christians headed to the northwest where they would have peace and stability living within the uh, province of Syria, living in the area of Phoenicia. Uh, Cyprus, the island out here in the Mediterranean, also had a, had a lengthy history in the ancient world. In the 9th century and 8th century B.C., Cyprus was settled by the Phoenicians, although in earlier centuries there were other Greek sea peoples who had settled there. After Alexander the Great, uh, defeated the Persian army at Isis in 333 B.C. Uh, he was uh, aided by uh, Cypriots who sent 120 ships to help support his siege against Tyre. After Alexander died, uh, the Ptolemies, Ptolemy was one of his generals who received the uh, area of North Africa as his area of domain, uh, Seleucus was another general who received the area of Syria and north, and there was always a battle between the Ptolemies in the south in Egypt and the Seleucids. It's who's going to control this area in between, this area of, of Israel and uh, Phoenicia, who will dominate. In the early years, it was the Ptolemies in Egypt. Later on, it became dominated by by the Syrians. But when Rome came along, uh, in 58, Rome conquered uh, Cyprus, and Cir- Cicero was appointed its governor in uh, B- 52 B.C. In 22 B.C., Rome made Cyprus an, a senatorial uh, province, and it had a great, uh, great population of Jews. But there was a revolt in the early part of the 2nd century A.D., a precursor to the Bar Kokhba revolt in Israel. There was a Jewish revolt in Cyprus, and which Hadrian violently suppressed and then banished all the Jews from that island. But a large number of Jews had settled there, including a number of Levites, including Barnabas, who we have met before and will meet again in this particular chapter. This is where Barnabas' family was located, and he was previously mentioned in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 36. Then we have Antioch, Antioch located up here. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Think of that. The third largest city. Number one, of course, was Rome. Number two was Alexandria in northern northern Egypt. And Antioch was the third largest. Now, 
Archaeologists and scholars debate how large it was. Some say the population was as high as 800,000. Just imagine that. Imagine that in terms of all of the plumbing, the sewage, uh, all of the food that has to come in, transported in every day, the markets, the people, 800,000 is a lot of people. The small, on the other side, some think it was only about 275 or 300,000. Approximately 14 to 15% of the population, though, was Jewish. That would put the Jewish population of Antioch as somewhere between 40,000 and 120,000. Now, to put that into perspective, the greater Houston area now has a population of about 6 million. We have a Jewish population in Houston of about 50,000. So the population and, and, and the, uh, the percentage of Jews in Texas is about 1.5%. If you go to Maryland, Maryland has a, has a uh, Jewish population of about 18%, most of them concentrated in the northern suburbs just outside of Washington, D.C., and are, they're involved in various things related to uh, related to the government. But that means that the Jewish electorate in Maryland is very significant since in the uh, last couple of presidential elections, 98.5% of Jews in America voted. It's the highest representation of any ethnic group, highest participation of any ethnic group in the U.S. That's why that vote is deemed so significant because if there's a 10% shift to the Jewish vote, that's a lot of votes, especially if they're in the right states and in the right areas. So there's a large Jewish population here. It's still a minority living in a, in a Gentile world. But remember, most of these Jews would be like what we think of as Orthodox. They were separate separatists. They were separated and had very little to do with the surrounding uh, Gentile culture. Many of the Christian Jews that were in Jerusalem had fled up to Antioch as a result of the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. And they settled there and formed a church, and their ministry was to Jews. So the church there was primarily at this time a Jewish church. Now, Antioch is on a trade route. If you look here, you have the trade north-south trade route, and then you have trade routes that come in from the east, and you have a harbor down here which gives them access uh, access to the sea. So Antioch was uh, had elements of a port city like Corinth, which meant it brought in all kinds of the dregs of uh, society from all over the world. There were large numbers of immigrants from all over the Roman Empire who thought that if if they could just get to Antioch, to the Big Apple of Eastern Rome, then they could find a job and they could have us great success. And so it, it attracted all kinds of people that were constantly moving uh, to Antioch, to the sin city of the east. It had a reputation of low morality, but within the Jewish community, there would have been a high standard uh, of morality. Now, this church that's founded in Antioch is a church that is founded on the principle of grace orientation. They know that God is in charge and that they are dependent upon God for whatever happens. And they're not pursuing growth for growth's sake. They're concerned with carrying out God's mission. They're excited about the gospel. One of the things that makes a difference in, in many churches is that you have some people who are just excited about what they're learning. 
They're so excited about the gospel. They're so excited about the doctrine they're learning that they just tell people, they tell people, they drag everybody to church because you got to hear what I'm hearing because this is great stuff. It's, they're not trying to make the church grow. They're just excited about what they're, what they're learning. And that's the idea. They wanted to get the gospel out to everybody. This is the church that is going to be the first church to send out, uh, missionaries. So that Antioch as a city became a major center for Christianity during the first four centuries of the church age. In the early part of the second century, it is the headquarters of Ignatius, who is one of the early uh, post-apostolic church fathers. Uh, He is noted because he coined the term Catholic Church for the universal church. That's what the term Catholic means. Now we refer to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, that defines it, but we should all believe in the Catholic Church because that's the universal body of Christ. That's what universe, That's what Catholic means, is universal. We just don't believe in the Roman Catholic Church. It, later on, it was the location of the ministry of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom means golden mouth. That last syllable, stom, stoma, means mouth in, um, in, uh, in, in Greek. And it's borrowed into Russian, and it has to do with somebody who is a, a stomatologist, is a dentist, Dr. Bruce, because it works in the mouth, in the stoma. So he was golden mouth, but he was a, he was a corrupt golden mouth because he was one of the uh, early vocal replacement theologian types who preached a virulent anti-Semitism in the early church. So there were some good points to Chrysostom and some really evil points to Chrysostom in terms of his uh, anti-Semitism. He developed and promoted the doctrine that the Jews needed to be punished because they were the murderers of Christ. Now, in the next verse, talks about men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is indicated on this map over here. This is in the area of uh, Libya, much in the news today. Cyrene is mentioned. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus. There were men from Cyrene in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Cyrene was a Roman colony established in North Africa. And uh, it had been founded earlier by Greeks. The Greeks colonized all around the Mediterranean, establishing uh, various uh, agricultural colonies. And uh, Cyrene was well noted and mentioned uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, The Jews at the synagogue of the Cyrenes, of the uh, freemen, in Acts chapter 6 were responsible for uh, the assault against Stephen. So there are uh, Cyrenes mentioned many times in the Scripture, but there were some Christians from Cyrene, probably converted by those who were there on the day of Pentecost, who were in in Antioch, came to Antioch, and they they spoke to the Hellenists. Now, this was a term for the Jews who were... Uh, who had completely converted to a Greek culture. They, they had assimilated uh, into the Greek culture rather than the Jewish culture. And here they're preaching uh, the Lord Jesus. Now, I put this up here earlier. This is the diaspora. I didn't get the other terms up here. But what we have in verse 18, preaching the word, the word preaching in verse 19, rather, 
preaching in verse 19 is simply the word laleo, which means to speak. They were speaking the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, that word is the same word that I talked about on Sunday morning, and in the context it means probably teaching or preaching or discussing, but it's not the more technical word keruso for proclamation. In verse 20, the word that is translated preaching the Lord Jesus is evangelizo, which means proclaiming the gospel, where we get our word evangelism. So neither of these two words really focus on proclamation or preaching itself. One is simply speaking the word uh, to no one but the Jews only, and the other is uh, evangelizing or giving the good news about the Lord Jesus. And verse 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So the emphasis is on God's working behind the scenes on the one hand and the individual volition of the hearers on the other hand. There is not a sense of manipulation through uh, psychological techniques of salesmanship and marketing. It is simply the proclamation of the truth, and people respond, and they were Jews who believed and turned. Epistrepho, it's that same concept we saw from Deuteronomy 30, Going back to Peter's mention, uh, mention of the term to repent, it means to turn to Jesus. It, it, and that was the issue for Israel, was they needed to, to turn back to the Lord. Now, as a result of the, this development, news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, Barnabas... Uh, was introduced to us earlier. His name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So it, uh, it was a nickname. His name was Joseph, but he was called Barnabas because he was one of these people who really encouraged everyone. He was more concerned about, the, about people obeying the word and developing their gifts and getting focused than he was about accruing any kind of honor or any kind of reputation for himself. His uh, background was he was a Levite, and he is the man who's the only one who's still thinking about Paul. Everybody else is, we're glad we got Paul out of town. Remember the last time we heard about Paul, he was causing such a problem, uh, disturbing the peace so much in Jerusalem that they shipped him back home to Tarsus, and then we read, and they had peace in Judea and Samaria. So as the church in Antioch is growing, uh, the leaders, the apostles in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to Antioch. And verse 23 says, When he came, uh, and then he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged, and encouraged them all that with the pur- that with, uh, encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, and that's not really the, the best translation there. Uh, really, it's the idea that, that, that they, uh, he he um, he saw the grace of God. He encouraged all of them, and then he focused their attention on the Lord. They were to seek Him. That was the priority. Was their relationship with God? The priority wasn't church growth. The priority isn't how many are here. The problem is that we're here. I mean, the priority is we're here, and we need to make sure our priority is our relationship with the Lord. And then in verse 24, his character is described uh, as, a man, as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And I've said before, this term here for full of the Holy Spirit isn't a term, uh, isn't the same word that we have in Ephesians 5.18 
for being filled with the Spirit. That's the word uh, plerao. This is the word pimplemi, and it usually precedes some kind of speaking, some kind of an utterance, and that's what we see here. He's full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and he's encouraging people, and as a result, again, we read another progress report, a great many people were added to the Lord. And it's getting so big that Barnabas can't handle the leadership alone, so he needs a good uh, uh, shotgun, a good uh, number two man, so he remembers Saul of Tarsus. So he heads off to Tarsus to get Saul, and when he found him, and the word there, when he he departed for Saul, uh, Tarsus to seek Saul, the word there is anazeteo, which is an, uh, an emphatic form of that word. He doesn't just look for him. He diligently seeks, seeks him. He has to really look hard and, and search for Saul, for Saul, and he finds him, brought him back to Antioch, and then a year goes by. This is from the spring of 43 to the spring of 44, that... <clears throat> For a whole year, they worked with the church, taught a great many people, and it was here that they're first called Christians. Now, some people think this was a deri- there's a lot of debate over what this means. Who first called them Christians? We don't know. Did they first call themselves Christians? Were they called Christians by other people? Uh, was the term Christian something that was a, a derogatory statement? Uh, we don't know. The term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament here in Acts 26:28 and in 1 Peter 4:16 and at no point is it ever indicated that it was used as sort of an insult or sort of a negative nickname um, the word probably means those who are followers of Christ although other suggested meanings include partisans of Christ followers of Christ soldiers of Christ little Christs but it probably means those who were followers of Christ and indicating that they're beginning to perhaps move out from just being identified as a group of Jews. So they're first called Christians. And then we see the maturity of the church there because in the last four verses, they are concerned about supporting the church in Antioch. A famine occurs. There were several famines in the 40s in, uh, in this area. Major famine affects those in Jerusalem. They don't have much money. They're hungry. Uh, it's hard to get money. They're in a financial collapse situation. And so the church in Antioch gives of their substance to help support the church, the believers in, uh, in Jerusalem. So they send a delegation of Barnabas and Saul down to Jerusalem. This will be Saul's second visit to Jerusalem and it's probably the visit mentioned in Galatians 1. So we'll look at that a little bit next time as we go into the next major event in chapter 12. But the church grows. Why? Because the people are focused on spiritual growth. They're focused as part of that in witnessing and telling other people about Jesus as the Messiah and in telling other people about what they're learning in terms of the Word of God. And as a result of that, their focus is not on growth for growth's sake, but their focus is on just doing what God says to do. And as a result, God works out his plan. It's, it's amazing to see how that, how that took place. But this is at the beginning of the church, and God's plan was different in that, that century and at that time than it is today because we live in a culture that is hostile to truth, hostile to Christianity, and we don't see the kind of response to Christianity and to Bible teaching that you saw in the 1950s and 1960s. It's a different world, 
and uh, we can't do this, you, you know, we're just, we do the same thing, but sometimes you get one response, sometimes you get another response, but our focus isn't on the response, or it shouldn't be. Our response is on loving the Lord and doing the right thing and putting our focus on making the Word of God and its application the number one priority in our life. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity this evening to study these things. We pray that we might be faithful, not discouraged by what goes on around us, but encouraged because we see many different evidences of your work in people's lives as they come to know the scriptures, they come to trust you, as they face the problems of life on the basis of your word and are strengthened and encouraged because they're living on the basis of truth. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us in this area that we might be faithful witnesses in our application of your word to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.